Well, we return this morning to the God-breathed words of Matthew chapter 5, to the Beatitudes, and to Jesus' declaration of blessing that sets apart life in his kingdom. A new life of repentance and faith in him that begins and ends not with our works or our good deeds or what we bring to the table, but it begins and ends with the grace, the unmerited favor of our God. This is what sets apart the life of a Christian. And we're going to see that and how this plays out. It is not our perfection. And it's certainly not our purity because our purity falls short. And this is the good news of the gospel. What sets apart this life is the blessing of God. It is a life that is built upon the blessing, the unmerited favor, the goodness, and the grace of our God in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this morning we come to two blessings of Christ's kingdom, and they are blessings that are only found in Christ's kingdom, two blessings that are made possible by the gift of His righteousness and His mercy. And as such, they are extremely rare in this world, and they're very, very misunderstood. And these are the blessings of God's purity and His peace. The blessings of God's purity and His peace. And brothers and sisters, we live in a time and a place where purity and peace are clearly in short supply. I think we see that not just in our politics, but our religion as well. And we think of how many pastors have stumbled in the pulpit, right? And how many men with seminary degrees have faltered. And we see we live in this time where purity seems like a completely foreign concept and peace is far from us. Well, what is it that makes a child of God pure in heart? That's the question we're going to consider this morning. What it makes a person pure in heart? And what makes a person or a child of God a peacemaker? And as we come to the text, we see according to Jesus, it is not a peacemaker pledge. It is not a biblical counseling class. It is not a seminary diploma. What makes a child of God pure in heart and what makes a child of God a peacemaker is the blessing of God's purity and peace in Christ. It's the blessing of these gifts that God pours into the life of a child of God and does so in one place and in one person alone, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this Sunday... And next Sunday, we're going to focus on these, but very specifically, we're going to take this time this Sunday and next Sunday to focus predominantly on purity. And we're going to see how purity leads to peace. The two go hand in hand, just like righteousness and mercy go hand in hand. But we're going to take this time to focus on what is purity and what does it mean to have a pure heart this week and next. Next week, we'll focus on the practical applications. This week, we'll lay the foundations down. And we're doing so in particular because we live in a time and a place and we are a people, excuse me, who really struggle with this issue of purity. And we are a congregation who struggles with this issue of purity. And we need help. And the good news of God's word is that help God has given in fullness in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why we sang this morning, turn your eyes upon Jesus. And that's exactly what we'll do right now. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, and we will read verses 1 through 9. And as that stalwart of the faith, J.C. Ryle, reminded us, When we hear Christ's words, we receive a treasure beyond worth. And we would do well to sit at his feet and treasure and guard every word he speaks. Matthew 5.1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. For they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, 
for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Hopefully by now you're beginning to see that these beatitudes build on one another. And they are a collective whole. You can't take one without the other. Poverty of spirit brings us to a place of mourning and grieving over our sin. And mourning over our sin brings us to a place of meekness where we are humbly dependent on the grace of God and not our own self-righteousness. And meekness in turn brings us to a place where we hunger and thirst for our righteousness that we do not possess or we cannot achieve or earn. And hungering and thirsting for righteousness shows us our desperate, desperate need for God's mercy, His compassion, His love, His forgiveness. And it's through the receipt of that mercy that we ourselves are transformed into merciful people who have compassion for other sinners and for others who are struggling under the weight and burden of sin. And we see with each one of these that they are each a fundamental gift and work of God. Each one of them is a gift, but they come together and each one of them functions really as the foundation for new life in Christ's kingdom. They lay the foundation and they set the direction for this entirely new life that comes with Christ as king. And as Jesus points out, and as he walks us through these, he shows us that these are part of a life that's not pie in the sky. Oh, I'm going to be merciful when I get to heaven. Oh, I'm going to be kind or meek when Jesus comes again. This is a life that begins here and now. It may begin small, but it begins here and now in this fallen world, and it begins like Christ's kingdom with his rule and his reign over our hearts as King and as Savior and as Lord. And as Jesus goes on to show us, as he walks through these and in the rest of the gospel, he shows us this new life that he's given us, which is built upon his life and the blessings he brings into our life. This new life is like a plant, and it starts small, but it continues to grow and it continues to mature over time. And what is it that grows and matures that plant? Well, it's the same thing that gave it life. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's God's grace. It's God's unmerited favor. As we've said before, God doesn't just save us and then say, okay, here you go. You're in the church, and now you figure it out. Now you strive, and now you work, and now you learn, and now you become smart, and then you become an elder, and then you become a deacon, and then you run a ministry. Absolutely not. Jesus shows us from beginning to end as you walk through, it's God's grace that brings us into the kingdom and it's God's grace that sustains every step. And the sweetness of our good father is he gives us every gift we need to walk every step of the way. Albeit we walk by faith and not by sight and we need manna from heaven and we get our daily bread sometimes not knowing where it's going to come the next day or the day after. But nonetheless... It's that faith in a good and gracious God who's able to take care of us, a God of grace and a God of truth and a God of righteousness and mercy who provides for our need every step of the way. And as we consider this life that he's given us and we consider his reign over our life and we consider the need to mature what is it that pushes us forward? And what is it and where is it that the Lord is bringing us? And as Jesus walks us through and we're starting to get to the end, we see and we're seeing what maturity in Christ looks like, we begin to see where Christ is leading us. He's not leading us to a place where we're there simply as his minions to do his bidding, though we should be. His joy and delight because he loves you and his desire is that you would see him and know him fully for who he truly is. That you might be able to see God. Because this is the greatest treasure and gift you could possibly have. To behold the beauty and goodness and infinite grace of who God is. And where do we see that most fully? We see it in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this is what we will spend eternity doing. And that's why, as we talked about in Lagos a long time ago... 
John Owen making this point. What is the greatest advantage and benefit in a Christian's life? It's to behold the infinite goodness and glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And this entire life and the afflictions that come and the challenges that come, they are actually the preparation for us for when he comes again, when we see him face to face. Whether we pass away and die or whether he comes again, where we are in a position where we can appreciate the goodness and beauty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'll make this illustration till the cows come home. I typically do not take our boys out to really expensive sushi dinners. They would much rather have a happy meal. And so I love them. So, you know, that's the direction we go. But why? I do hope to get there someday. But I understand that they're not in a position at this time and place to really appreciate that. And so I don't stop and I don't aim that the rest of their lives, when they're 18 or 19, if they're still eating Happy Meals, right? But I understand too, this is where they're at, but I know that there's a place that we have to go and a direction that I have to shepherd them as their father to bring them to a place where they can appreciate and enjoy something that they are unable or they can only appreciate in a limited manner. And that's the beauty of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what purity and peace are all about. They are what the Lord is preparing us for by bringing us and breaking us and bringing us to that place of heartbrokenness over our sin. That's the preparation for which afflictions and trials come and our need to see His grace, the necessity of coming to the cross and our need to see we are not righteous. We need a righteousness from above and we need a mercy. This is it's a preparation not to stop, th- uh, stop there but to bring us to a place where we can truly appreciate the greatness of God's love for us because of the greatness of who our God is. And this brings us to our first point this morning. And I'm going to ask the AV team if you can help me with that. Thank you so much. True purity and peace begins with God, not us. True purity and peace begins with God, not us. And you can see, brothers and sisters, this is where the Beatitudes have been leading. That God's grace in our life is redirecting our hearts. So we can begin to see that what we need But not only what we need, but what is of infinite worth is not found in this world. And it's not found in us. But it's found in one place and one place alone. It's found in God. And by extension, it's found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, you'll recall that when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart and blessed are the peacemakers. He's speaking to the disciples and he's speaking to men specifically here, but by extension to all disciples, but to those who, because of Jesus, they now possess a purity of heart and a peace that they did not previously have and that they would not have if it was not for Jesus' presence in their lives. That's the difference. And it's because of this that they are indeed a people who are blessed by God because the peace and purity that they now have is very clearly not the peace and the purity of the world. For many, and this includes many professing Christians, we have a very distorted view of purity and peace. And that is because our definition of purity and peace is very much based on our experience. Purity is simply abstinence. If you've grown up in the church... And you've heard about purity pledges or you've been had the talk about purity. It's all about what you're not supposed to do. Wrap yourself up in a blanket and lock yourself up in a room. Right? Put a cover over your eyes. Purity is simply abstinence. And peace is simply the absence or avoidance of conflict or tension. Both of those are about the negative. And the path to both of these, this self-righteous peace and this self-righteous purity, what I do to manage and control everything in my life so I can stay on the dotted line, it's primarily about removing problems from our lives. And when we stop being able to remove those things in our lives, we fall apart. And the path to both of these is typically the path of all false religions. It's through self-discipline. It's through 
accountability. It's through negotiating. It's through getting covenant eyes on your computer screen. It's through having accountability partners. It's about going to an AA meeting every evening to say, I am an alcoholic. To have that accountability. And brothers and sisters, this is simply the self-righteous purity and peace of the monastery or the yoga studio that simply tries to remove stress or temptation in our lives. And we think, okay, that's far away, but it's not. We hear this often from Christians who struggle with sexual purity. And what we hear is, I just need to try harder. I am doing better. I just need more discipline in my life. I need more self-discipline. I need more accountability. And we see and hear similar things with people who are struggling to find peace. I should have said this. I should have done this. If they had just not said this, it wouldn't have set this person off. If they had just done things differently, we wouldn't have been in this situation or had this conflict. And the sad result, brothers and sisters, because this is a self-righteous pursuit and a self-righteous life, try as we might, what ends up happening is this self-righteous life of walking on eggshells. And it's inevitably doomed to fail. Why? First, this is not the purity and peace of God. And this is not the purity and peace of the gospel. And this is not the purity and peace of God's word. And that's a tragedy as many of us in the church have been raised with this, right? This is what we do for youth groups. Show them all the things, all the movies they shouldn't see, all the things that they shouldn't do. It's not the peace and it's not the purity of God, brothers and sisters. God didn't call us to run and stick our heads in a hole. But there's a second reason this fails. And it's because as sinners, by nature, we are incapable of true and lasting purity and peace. We are not, by nature, pure and peaceful people. Our hearts are prideful and they're filled with self-ambition. And we desire what we want and we will fight to get there. And we will contend. And so all of these techniques and admonitions and exhortations it's like training a shark not to bite you can do it for a season but sooner or later you're going to get bit but when we come back to the beatitudes the good news of God's word is that when Jesus talks about the purity and peace of his people that they possess he's not talking about an abstinence or accountability program He's not talking about a conflict-free life when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, because right after comes being persecuted for righteousness' sake. He's talking about the purity and peace of God. And I hope you're beginning to see as we go through these Beatitudes, that it, as we consider what it means to be a child of God, the place that we have to start, brothers and sisters, is not our broken experiences, not our broken expectations, and not our broken homes and lives. Praise God for that. That's what Jesus is bringing you out of and he's saving you out of. And so that's why the place that we begin is really looking at God first. Who he is. What is he about. And who is this God who has created us and saved us for himself to be children of his purity and his peace. Now as we come to this word, purity, another word for purity as you go to the scripture is Holiness. Holiness. And holiness refers to what is undefiled, what is undivided, what is uncompromised, and what is entirely devoted to the Lord. And this is the part we typically miss. We think of holiness and purity as, okay, what don't I do? But really, the beginning of holiness is what has God given you? He's given you himself. You've been given this infinitely wonderful and good and glorious love. It's about devotion, about being devoted to what you've already been given. In Exodus 30, 35, it looks at the Lord's worship. And it talks about all the things that the Lord puts together for the worship in the tabernacle. And it describes these instruments of worship as being 
pure and holy. Pure and holy. And by extension, those who come to worship in the tabernacle and those who serve there are called upon to be pure and holy according to the Lord. And that's why the sacrifices happen. And that's why blood covers the high priests and the priests. They need to be washed by the blood of the Lamb. Pure and holy. And related to this sense of what is undivided, and we'll get there, is another word for peace. And that word is simply unity. Unity. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4.3 when he exhorts believers to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so you see this idea of peace. It's not just the absence of conflict or tension. It's the idea of being together and not divided, being united in this intimate relationship of holy love where nothing can separate you. And that's a far cry from just being a ceasefire. And together, purity and peace, unity and holiness, are terms that God has given us in His Word and in His worship to help His children understand and know who He is and what He's about. That He's good. That He's trustworthy. Why can you trust the Lord? But because he is the God of purity and peace. You never need to doubt who he is. You never need to doubt where he's at. You never need to doubt what he says. That he's saying one thing but means something else. As you walk through the scriptures you see the words of the Lord and his instruction. It's not complicated. It's very simple. In fact, when we get into trouble is when we start to make things complicated. And we see that these are words that the Lord has used to, give a, to, to help us understand who He is and what sets Him apart by nature. They're the very words that show us who and what the Trinity is. Three distinct persons, but one God, united, inseparable, in a holy and perfect union of holy and perfect, undivided, uncompromised, undefiled devotion for one another. Right? That is the Trinity. Unity and peace. Personified, exemplified, the very basis of it. And of course, these are the things, brothers and sisters, where Paul goes to talk about what our marriages are supposed to be like and what our fellowship in the church is supposed to be like. It's meant to be, because this is who our God is, the God of purity and peace, our relationships are to express this purity and peace, where there's this perfect and undivided and undefiled devotion that brings us to this place of unity where there's nothing that comes between us and there's nothing that separates us. And so we see this is what shows us who God is. Not just on a good day, brothers and sisters, but every day in everything He is and all that He does. And so when God speaks, God speaks words of purity and peace. And so unlike the words of men, Psalm 12, 2, which says, everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart. They speak. This idea of a double heart, division, right? It's not just defilement, it's division. The idea of a double heart is you have two hearts. You've got one heart for God and one heart for the world. And you show up with the heart for God at church on Sunday and the heart for the world you do when nobody else is looking. Two hearts, a divided heart from which comes double speak. You say something to one person, but then you say something else to another and they don't jive. They don't come together. They're not united, right? And the point of the psalmist is that, hey, this is, this is how we all are. We all have divided hearts. You get me in a good day, I'm going to say one thing. You get me in a bad day, it's going to look like something else. And in contrast to that, Psalm 12, 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, undefiled, no duplicity, True, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And then unlike the self-serving and deceptive love of men that divides, God's love is holy. And it's a love that unites. 
that brings together those who love the Lord. And we see this in Isaiah 54.10. The holy love with which God loves His children. Isaiah 54.10 says, For the mountains may depart, and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Brothers and sisters, that's what pure love is. Pure love is an unwavering love that will never fail, never walk away, never go someplace else. It will always be with you and for you through thick and thin. And this is what the Lord is expressing to His people in Isaiah 54. And then He goes on and says, And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion. And that word for compassion is raham, which means mercy. Right? And so we see it's just like the Beatitudes. Jesus isn't coming up with something new. The Lord has a heart of mercy and compassion for His children. Even in their sin and waywardness, His love will not abandon them. He will do what's necessary to bring them back. And the intent of His love is to bring them to a place of His covenant of peace, His promise and His provision, His promise and His provision for unity with His people because they don't have it. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. And of course, we know where that covenant of peace goes. It's covered by the shedding of blood and by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is such good news. Because the God of Bible, the Bible is a holy God, this is the love that He gives His children. And this is the love that draws us into fellowship with Him. And this is the love that gives us shalom. All the blessing, all the life, all the love, all the joy, all the celebration that comes from where? From being united with a God who loves us perfectly. And brothers and sisters, what a contrast to the love of men. Which more often than not is self-serving. How do you make me feel? What do you do for me? And ultimately is divisive and defiling. And so we see as we come to this why God desires a pure heart. Because a pure heart and a pure love is what leads us to a place of intimacy and fellowship with the Lord where there's nothing separating us. And this is God's desire for His family and for His children. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Purity of heart is necessary for peace with God. Purity of heart is necessary for peace with God. And this is something that King David, a man after God's own heart, understood well. He understood it well from the good side, and he understood it well from the bad side. If you have your Bibles, have a look at Psalm 24. Psalm 24, the one that comes right after Psalm 23. And have a look at verse 3. King David says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place. Now what's King David talking about here? He's talking about drawing near to the tabernacle. He's talking about worship. What is worship? Worship, brothers and sisters, in part is about drawing near to God. And we tend to focus on worship on what we do. What do I need to do? But without God, there is no worship. The idea of worship is this beauty of sitting down at a table and having a meal with our Father. It's about drawing near and intimacy and union and peace and drawing close. And part of worship, too, involves service as well. And it's worth stopping and saying, brothers and sisters, when we think about worship, when we think about coming here on Sunday, when we think of serving, when we think of setting up tables outside, when we think of parking cars... Are we thinking that this is all about drawing near to the God who's drawn near to us? It's worth stopping and thinking about that and being mindful because we miss out on the joy of serving the Lord and we miss out on the joy of fellowship and ministry when we forget what's most important, which is not us, 
It's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if we believe his promises and we believe his word that he is with us until the end of the age, hey, he's really present. And when we gather together as the people of God, whether we're washing cars or setting up chairs, we have an opportunity to experience our Lord and Savior in and through the lives of other believers who are filled with his spirit in a unique and special way that is a privilege and a treasure that the world does not know to come face to face with the living God in and through his people. And that brings us to thinking through, well, what are the criteria of worship? What are the expectations? What, what's the criteria? What should be on the questions about who gets to play a guitar up here? And who gets to stand in the pulpit? Who gets to wash the cars? And who gets to be involved in all the different ministries? Now, more often than not, we think of it in a worldly way. Who, who does the best job? Who's able to put PowerPoints up without getting it wrong? Who's able to play the guitar without playing a bad note? Who's able to make sure the cars get put in the right place? And yes, we want the cars put in the right place. Don't want any kids run over, right? But nonetheless, the criteria for the Lord, brothers and sisters, isn't how well you perform because you can never perform as well as the Lord. His criteria is a pure heart. It's a pure heart, and it's a heart that is united with Him. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Verse 4. He who has a clean hands and a pure heart. And in scripture, the idea of hands refers to all our actions. All our, our responsibilities. Everything that we do and say. And heart in scripture is the mission control center of the soul. In Greek, it's mind. When you come to the New Testament, they use that term mind. And the heart is the seed of our will, our affections, our desires, our beliefs. It's the center of a person that really sets the direction of the entirety of our life. Where we go, what we do, what we gravitate towards. That is the heart. And in the rest of verse 4, King David explains what clean hands and a pure heart look like. He says, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false. He's talking about idolatry. Right? Lifting up your soul to what is false. And this, brothers and sisters, is the demonstration of what a double heart or a divided heart is. A false heart worships a false god. You're not going to get attracted to something you don't like. Right? There's plenty of meals I can put on a table that you wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. You don't like it. You don't want to go there. You wouldn't touch it. Lifting up our soul to what is false. The idolatrous heart and does not swear deceitfully or does not bear allegiance deceitfully. This is about loyalty and allegiance. And it's a false profession of fidelity. And clean hands and a pure heart are the opposite of an adulterous, idolatrous, and divided heart. And from inside and out, the clean hands and a pure heart is a life and a heart of single-minded devotion and delight in the Lord. That's what he's talking about. It's a heart that comes in. It's, there's nothing else that matters. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, right? It's this craving, this desire where nothing else is going to satisfy the heart except being in the presence of the Lord. It's like some of the Psalms that we read about being and standing in the face, which having the face of the Lord shine upon us to bask in His sunlight. That's the only place I want to be. That's the only thing that matters. That I would wake up in the morning in the courts of the Lord. Right? This is what he's talking about. It's a heart that leaves no room for any other love as a substitute for God. Be it our careers, our families, our ministries. And it's what the Lord requires and is necessary to draw near to Him in worship and to serve Him and to experience unity with Him. Now, does that sound harsh? 
The Lord expects perfect devotion. He requires perfect devotion. And without perfect devotion to the Lord, you can't come in and you can't come close to the Lord and you can't worship Him. That's what the whole sacrificial setup was in the Old Testament where the altar stood before you could come close to the Holy of Holies and to the tent of meeting. There's something that separates you from that. It's so harsh, right? Are you going to bar the doors, Pastor Mark? Are you going to have an inquisition at the Lord's table? But brothers and sisters, it's not hard to see in our own lives how a divided heart destroys unity. Wives, how many of you love it when your husband cuddles up next to you and he's got one eye in the Warriors game on TV? Right? Or all he can think about is work, 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 and you know, and they know that your mind is singing about work. Okay, I'll be with my family. It's a divided heart. Yeah, I want to be with the family. I want to be a good dad, but I really have this project I need to get done. It's a divided heart. It's an impure heart. Right? And we don't want that. It's not good enough for us. But somehow it should be good enough for the church and it should be good enough for the worship and it should be good enough for service and preaching and it should be good enough for the Lord. And it's not rocket science, brothers and sisters, to see how idolatry and divided hearts lead to hearts of discontent, that there's something better elsewhere. And this destroys unity and it destroys peace and it destroys marriages and it destroys families and it destroys sports teams. How many times have we seen the star athlete who's not happy with his team? He wants out. Doesn't matter how much they pay, whatever. And what happens to team spirit and everybody else? Oh, they play so much better when he's unhappy. Well, brothers and sisters, the same is true in our marriages, our relationship, and our church family. And brothers and sisters, this is the heart of sin. That begins with a defiled and divided heart. That destroys our lives and it destroys our relationships. First with God and then with everybody else. And at the heart of it, it's the selfish pursuit of false gods. It's lies and lusts. It's believing that God and his love are not worthy of our love. It's believing that God is not enough. So therefore, I have to find my satisfaction and delight in all of these other things, respectable and not respectable. And there's another psalm that helps us understand this. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 73. It's the psalm of Asaph, and it shows how we're prone to this. And it shows us the beginning of an impure heart. This is the psalm that Dr. Grisanti walked us through this summer. It says, truly, verse 1, God is good to Israel, to those who are what? Pure in heart. But as for me, this is a contrast, but as for there's the pure in heart, God's good to the pure, but as for me, and he's giving you the implication, hey, what's about, what I'm about to tell you isn't so pure. My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Where did it start? For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And here, the psalmist draws a connection between purity in heart and what we see. Turn your eyes on Jesus, the song that Danny led us in this morning. What is it that divides the heart of Asaph? This man who is high up in the worship, okay? Of the people of God in the tabernacle. What is it that nearly causes him to stumble and slip? It begins with his eyes on the prosperity of the wicked. My life isn't good enough. I've worked hard. I've served the Lord. Why are those ugly people doing so well? In the great vehicle. The great house. The great ministry. God is not enough. And it's because... Of envy of the arrogant. And then we see, brothers and sisters, this is not something new. This is the same heart and pattern of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? There's a better deal out there. What did they see? It begins with a lie and it begins with a lust. God is not good enough. There's a better deal out there somewhere else. I see it. Hey, this looks really good. And then it becomes covetous. Let me have it. 
And we see the same thing with King David as he sins in adultery with Bathsheba, right? What's he supposed to be doing? His eyes are to be on the Lord. He's sitting in his penthouse. He's looking out and he sees a woman who's bathing. It's not enough that I've got all these other wives. It's not enough that I have all this blessing as a king. That's the one that I want. And we see, brothers and sisters, how it starts small with taking our eyes off the Lord. It begins with believing the lie that God is not good enough for my marriage, my work, my ministry. And it begins with lusting for something else. And the result is a divided and impure heart, a heart that kind of wants all these other things. In the old days, we used to call it two-timers. That's the old-fashioned word, right? And the result is being blinded by our idolatries, by the lies, and by the lusts of the heart. And the psalmist says this in Psalm 40.12. He says, my iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. Brothers and sisters, why are we blind? Why cannot we see? Why can't we see the Lord? Why can't we see the good in our wives and our children? Why can't we see the blessings in our local church? Why can't we appreciate all the blessings that the Lord has put over us? Many times it's because our hearts are divided and defiled and we can't see because of our lusts and because of the lies and the things that we've been staring at and longing for and pursuing. You hear this from men who get divorced and they say, I, I, I blew it because of my career. I was so busy at my work, I couldn't see what was going on in the home. And worse still, it begins with being unable to see the beauty and goodness of the Lord. But then it extends with a view that becomes distorted and discontent with everything around us. So everything becomes upside down and out of focus. And so you see, brothers and sisters, without a pure heart, we cannot see the Lord. We cannot draw near the Lord. We can't know His peace. And herein lies the problem. No one is righteous, no, not one. None of us have pure hearts. And on top of that, we can't clean our hearts ourselves, which is so often what people try to do. I blew it, let me see what I can do to make it up to the Lord. But we can't. Proverbs 29 says, Who can say... I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Who can say it? None of us. And this, brothers and sisters, is why the gospel is such good news. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. Purity of heart and peace are found in Christ alone. And not only are they found in Christ alone, brothers and sisters, they are freely given and in abundance beyond what we need and beyond what we can handle. Isaiah 1.18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And we see, brothers and sisters, there's only one remedy for a divided and defiled heart. It's to come to the Lord and to come to Him in repentance and faith that He is enough. And for the Lord to wash, cleanse, and renew what has been broken and defiled. And how does He do that? And why can He do, why can he do that? Because He can wash us and heal us with a love and a life that is indeed holy and pure. And where is this most clearly seen? It's one place. And you know where I'm going. It's with Christ and it's on the cross. And this is where we see the purity and peace of God most visibly displayed. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. I think this is the last portion of scripture I'll get you to look out for me. And this is something we know. This is Paul writing to Titus. And he's reminding Titus, as Titus deals with a very impure church, that there's hope here, Titus. Why? Because the one who's going to purify the church, Titus, is not you. 
It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who's going to purify this marriage, Titus, is not you. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who's going to purify this ministry, Titus, is not you. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to what? Various passions and pleasures. That's the divided heart. Right? Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This is Paul's personal experience. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, think blessing, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, this is justification by faith, but according to His own Mercy, blessed are the merciful, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, being made clean, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Brothers and sisters, we have a generous God. He doesn't come and say, okay, you're going to clean up your life with a, a toothbrush and a little bit of bleach. He gives generously. Pours it out. And as you walk through this. And you see in Titus 3. This is the Beatitudes. This is Paul walking through the Beatitudes. In the same way. It begins with God's blessing. It begins with his grace. It begins with us realizing. We don't have righteousness. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It begins with the mercy of God. And it brings us to the place. The mercy of God. To a place where the Lord himself comes in. And gives us a new heart. And he washes us. And he cleans us through the blood of Christ. And he gives us a new heart. That is in fact pure. How do we draw near to the Lord, brothers and sisters? Well, the Lord gives us the pure heart that we don't have, but He gives it in one place and one place alone. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when this happens, brothers and sisters, for the first time, we begin to see who Jesus truly is. That He is precious and He is dear. And He's of infinite worth and there's nothing we would do to lose Him. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. He is the perfect substitute and sacrifice for my sin. He is the Prince of Peace. He is the Good Shepherd who takes care of me in the darkest of moments and times. And from then on, nothing, not a prison cell, can take away the peace that we know. Just like the Apostle Paul. Why is that? Because our lives are filled with His pure heart. With his pure love. With his pure goodness. With his perfect devotion to us. That is demonstrated on the cross. And with the forgiveness of sins. And this brothers and sisters. Is what gives us reassurance on the darkest of days. I may not be perfect. I may not be righteous. But my righteousness and my purity. And my perfection are found in him. And because of that. I will not take my eyes off him. The pure heart, brothers and sisters, is a heart that is not just, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do this. The pure heart is a heart that is overflowing with Christ and His love. And because it is so filled with His goodness and His grace and His mercy and His righteousness, it will not look to, it will not give in, it will not go to anything that will take us away from being with Him. Can I have my final PowerPoint slide? Thank you. And so this is why Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. They are blessed. If you have a pure heart, it's only because you've been blessed by God. Because God has given you what you do not have. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And that, brothers and sisters, from beginning to end, is the greatest reward and goodness and joy that we will ever know. To see the beauty and the glory and the infinite goodness and grace of God and Christ. And the best people to be around and those who are the most wonderful to experience and, and interact with. When you've met, sometimes they're missionaries. They're special people. They're people of faith who have just devoted to the Lord. Those are the people who are a joy to be around. Why? Because their hearts are filled with Christ. 
And brothers and sisters, we see that this is where we begin as children of God. Babes who are lying in their mother's arm where the only thing that they can see and they care about is their mother's love. And because they're there in their mother's arm, they're content. But our problem, brothers and sisters, even though that may be where we start, is we go through our terrible twos and we become teenagers. We start to look around the world and we see other people have cooler haircuts than we do and other people are able to buy whatever it is that we don't have, and they're able to drive the car, and their parents get them A, B, C, D, and E, and somehow our parents start to become very uncool and unhip. And it's like, why are you standing in the way of me getting out there and finding that there's a whole better world out there? And we laugh, but brothers and sisters, that happens to us as believers, and we take our eyes off the cross. How do we protect a pure heart, brothers and sisters? It's by enjoying and delighting in what God has already given us and keeping our eyes on the cross. And it's doing so by faith. It's doing so by His power. It's doing so by His goodness. And by coming in and saying, anything that's other, I'm not going to go there because I want to keep my eyes on Jesus. And I'll close with this. My homeboy, Sinclair Ferguson. Scottish homeboy, Presbyterian Covenant. He writes, being pure in heart means letting nothing stand in the way of our vision of Christ. He is, this is my addition, our infinitely great and beautiful and good Savior and Lord. But great things can be completely obscured by small things if the small things are brought near enough to our eyes. We see that this world has nothing to compare to Jesus Christ, but when we hold this world and all it offers too near... We no longer see Christ and His glory clearly. The value of this world grows out of proportion. We compromise, we stumble, and we fall. Brothers and sisters, whenever the premarital's come to us, and Will and Sarah, this is for you, this will save me saying something to you in private, say the same thing every single time as they get near to their wedding date. You're almost at the finish line. How are you doing with your purity? You're almost there. Don't blow it. Okay? And then it's, okay, well, do we need more accountability? Do we need this, that, and the other thing? And the exhortation is you need time with Christ and don't neglect that. As you get close, your mind is going to be on all the wedding details and all the things that you need to get done and all the people who want a piece of you, all the distractions. And with that, what ends up happening is your prayer time goes down and your devotional time goes down and your time with Christ goes down. But this is when you need it the most. Because the greatest provision for purity, brothers and sisters, is beholding the beauty and greatness and glory and goodness of who our Lord and Savior is. Do you have a pure heart, brothers and sisters? Well, there's hope and there's one who can give it. Go to Him and He will make you new. Lord Jesus, we just pray for pure hearts. We understand that it begins with you. Thank you for what you have done for us. That you have given us pure hearts. And you give us cleansing and forgiveness and washing in abundance for the worst of sinners. Lord Jesus, help us not to be distracted by the lesser things in this life and this world. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. And to trust and believe that you indeed are worthy and true and worth everything. In your name we pray, amen.